of you, but just to make sure we're on the same page, here's some context. Uh, the serpent was not just some random snake. Uh, the serpent was Satan, the devil, a created spiritual being, a fallen angel, uh, who's the most powerful of the enemies of God and man. And God had created all things good, and as we heard earlier, uh, put the first man and woman uh, into a beautiful garden to work it and to keep it, and there were trees that provided for their food, and they were allowed to eat from any tree except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's where Satan came in, in the form of this serpent. Uh, he deceived Eve into eating the fruit, and Adam, who was with her, also ate it, and as the result of Adam's sin, death entered into the world. Romans 5.12 says, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. That's, maybe this is just an aside here, but I often hear people want to place equal blame on Adam and Eve, but the Bible makes it perfectly clear that sin entered the world through one man. That doesn't mean that Eve didn't disobey God. She obviously did, right? But Adam is what we call the covenant head of humanity, meaning at this point he's acting on behalf of all who would come after him. And indeed, his actions have ramifications for the whole world. If we were to look just a couple verses ahead, in verse 17, God says, uh, Cursed is the ground because of you, to Adam. As Paul says in Romans 8, All creation has been subjected to futility. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. We are not the way that we are supposed to be. But God has a plan for making things right again. In a matter, as a matter of fact, God's plan is to make things better than they were before. And what is just fascinating is that God first announced this plan, the seeds of this plan, to his worst enemy. The gospel is first preached by God to the serpent, obviously not as an invitation for the serpent to repent, but as a proclamation of Satan's upcoming defeat. So, Looking at the first verse in our text here, God places the serpent under a curse, and there seem to be consequences for the devil from the beginning. Uh, part of it seems to happen immediately. God says, because you have done this, cursed are you above livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now this, on the surface, may bear some resemblance to, if you've heard some ancient myths about how certain animals uh, ended up the way that they do, uh, looking the way that they do. Maybe you heard the one about the, how the camel got its hump because it, it kept going around being rude and saying humph. Actually, that's, that, that's not an ancient myth. That was Rudyard Kipling in like 1902. But you get the idea, that, that kind of a thing. Uh, it may be that God determined the shape of snakes and maybe in part as a reminder of the, the fall and uh, the curse placed on the devil, in which case you know, snakes ought to be a reminder of God's utter dominion over even our worst enemy. Kind of makes me want to have a pet snake, if you think about it. That'd be pretty cool. Except you have to feed them rodents and watch them eat that, which is just, you know, it's just disturbing. But especially if you ever had a pet hamster, I don't know how you could do it. What am I talking about right now? Is this a sermon? Okay. So God's main point isn't about snakes, so I don't know why I went off on that point. God's main point is to address Satan himself. Somehow, Satan has been degraded and deformed as punishment for his treachery, and there's a poetic justice in this punishment because humanity was given lordship over all the livestock and beasts of the field, 
Now the devil is cast down beneath those creatures for attacking humanity. And humankind, we, we were made out of the dust of the ground. Perhaps the devil resented God's favor to these dust-born creatures. Now Satan himself will live in the dust. Uh, the upshot of this is that Satan is brought very low into a state of humiliation and disgrace. It might be uh, appropriate to imagine some kind of transformation that takes place in Satan's being. Um, there's a kind of angel. Uh, I don't know why I'm going off on this, but I am, because I think it's pretty neat. There's a kind of angel uh, in the Old Testament called a seraph, or you've probably heard the plural seraphim. Uh, if you're familiar with a passage in Isaiah 6 where the angels call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Those angels are called seraphim. That same word seraph in the Bible also refers to a fiery serpent. Uh, you see those kinds of serpents mentioned later in Isaiah, but also if you, you may or may not remember the events in the book of Numbers and repeated in Deuteronomy when God sent fiery serpents as a punishment for Israel's sin while they were in the wilderness. And there's a bronze serpent Moses raised up to save the people for that punishment. Those serpents are called seraphs. So it's possible that we're meant to see those angels called seraphim as winged serpents. They have hands and feet in Isaiah 6, but it often happens in ancient imagery that serpents are depicted with hands and, and feet. On top of that, archaeologists have even found some ancient Hebrew seals that have uh, pictures of multi-winged snakes on them. So if we're right in seeing those angelic beings as serpents, uh, winged serpents with hands and feet, then a devil stripped of hands and feet and wings and crawling in the dust has had his angelic dignity and, and majesty taken away. He's been cast down. Again, we don't know exactly what this means because we're talking about spiritual beings who don't have a physical body as we know it. And we know that the devil can still masquerade as an angel of light, but we also know that's a disguise and that's not who or what he really is. He's been brought low, but he'll be brought lower still. And that brings us to the second part of the curse. The, verse 15, God says he'll put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God says he'll put enmity between the serpent and the woman. Enmity means open hostility. The serpent and the woman will be bitter enemies. And this is not just talking about women hating snakes or snakes hating women. This is a kind of spiritual warfare. Remember, this is addressed to Satan too, not just snakes. So who is involved in this warfare? It starts out with just the woman and the serpent, then expands to their offspring, which I think includes all of their descendants, so to speak, and then culminates in a final battle between one ultimate offspring of the woman, an individual who will bruise the serpent's head even as his own heel is bruised. And one thing that I had never thought about before looking at it this week is the enmity that God puts between Satan and Eve herself. She's the first human being in the Bible that's described as someone who opposes the devil. One Bible teacher, Bruce Waltke, sees a kind of conversion for Eve at this point because God puts it in her heart to oppose the devil and his works. So the beginnings of the devil's undoing come through her. It's interesting to compare this to some 
other ways that women have been portrayed uh, by different cultures. For, for the Greeks, uh, the woman was given as a curse. If you remember um, in Greek mythology, a woman named Pandora, not the little bracelets that have all the things on it, but the woman Pandora, who, she was given to mankind as a punishment after Prometheus stole fire from the gods. And she may, not, may or may not know the story, but she, in Greek mythology, she opens a box, infamous Pandora's box, and let loo- lets loose all the evils that plague the world. This is kind of how the serpent uh, wants to use her, as a weak point to be exploited so that his venom can come into the world. And Adam kind of sees her that way too at first, when God first confronts him after eating the fruit, and he throws Eve under the bus. He blames the woman that you gave to be with me. It's, it's her fault. So Adam sees the gift that God gave as suspect. But God throws all of that back in the serpent's face and back in Adam's face. The woman is a gift even after the fall. Because starting with Eve, God begins to unfold his great plan of redemption. And Adam will later make a similar assessment after hearing the curses placed on himself and on Eve and on the serpent. The first thing we hear Adam do is to name his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So even as death is entering the world through Adam's sin, there's hope of life entering the world through Eve and through her offspring. So let's look at the offspring next. Um, Not the 90s punk band, The Offspring. Uh, but the offspring, that's the serpent of the woman. They're two different things. You've, you've got to keep them separated. So God will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, and that enmity extends to their respective offspring. Now, it's reasonable to assume that we're not talking about baby snakes here. Uh, can we agree on that? Uh, and it seems unlikely that we're talking about uh, demons either. It's not clear that Satan has any biological descendants or the ability to to create such things but offspring can be used not only for biological descent but following in somebody's footsteps for example Paul in Galatians 3 7 says that those who have faith are sons of Abraham since Abraham also had faith in God's promises and on the other hand Jesus 44 called the Jewish leaders the Jewish religious leaders children of their father, the devil. They're his children because they follow his lying and murderous ways. And as we move forward from Genesis chapter 3 through the storyline of the Bible, this is what we see. We see certain human beings acting as offspring of the serpent in contrast to people who are portrayed as offspring of the woman. So the text then confronts us with this key question, whose offspring are you? Are you the offspring of Eve, the offspring of the serpent? As a side note, but I think it's an important one uh, today and maybe just about every day, uh, the enmity between the woman and the serpent and their respective offspring, it, to me it explains so much of the ill treatment of women that we see throughout the history of the world. There's this enmity. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one, First John 5, 19 says, and the evil one hates the woman. 
And the world is full of his offspring, and they hate the woman. And they will do anything to keep us seeing the women the same way as a dubious gift, a Trojan horse, a source of evil and temptation, rather than people made in the image of God whose unique gifts and contributions are a necessary part of God's design for the world and for the church. Christ is dishonored wherever the woman is dishonored and degraded. But the promise of offspring also explains why what I'll call birth narratives are a relatively common feature in the Old Testament. And of course, uh, the very beginning of the New Testament has a prominent birth narrative. There are several stories of God working at decisive moments in redemptive history in the Bible story through women bearing children, often in the face of opposition or difficult circumstances. For example... Uh, later on in Genesis, you have the story of 90-year-old Sarah finally giving birth to the son of laughter that God had promised. In the book of Exodus, you see the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua are their names. Name your daughter Shifra and Pua someday, you young people, that's, that's something to file away. But they're protecting Israelite babies from Pharaoh's murderous decree to slaughter the Hebrew children. And also, you see in that same book, Moses' mother and his sister acting to save his infant life. The books of Samuel tell the story of the rise of David, this king after God's own heart, but they deliberately start with the story of a woman named Hannah who suffers greatly because of childlessness with no one to hear her cries until God finally does, and through her comes the prophet Samuel. Even before that, we had Ruth, an immigrant widow who became the great-grandmother of King David. In all of these, God shows us how he worked through women to bring about the deliverance for his people and fulfillment of his promises. The point is not that the only contribution women can make is to pop out babies, although that's pretty impressive, but we see God working through women in a variety of other ways, both in Scripture and today, in fact, this is a little bit of an aside, but it has to do with uh, the, the crushing of the snake's head. Uh, one of my favorite women in scripture is Jael from the book of Judges, uh, who reflects this promise in a more direct way. Uh, a leader of Israelites' enemies had sought refuge in, inside her tent because her husband was an ally, and she took a tent peg and drove it through his temple and into the ground. Uh, she nailed his head to the floor, and he, um, he didn't survive this. But the people sing of her afterwards in a song, she crushed his head. Still, stories of women giving birth to the deliverance of God's people is a major part of the Old Testament story. And again, the point is not that women are good, all the women are good for is giving birth to the men who will do the real work. No, the point is that God is working throughout redemptive history to bring to fulfillment his promise of a serpent-crushing offspring of the woman. And in the last part of Genesis 3.15, we read the final fulfillment of that promise. There's an ultimate offspring of the woman, a singular offspring, a he who will bruise the serpent's head even as the serpent bruises his heel. Now the word bruise in English is a little bit mild. Um, the, the Hebrew word here can also be translated crush. The, the idea is that both parties are seriously injured. These are mortal wounds. You know, crushing a snake's head is a pretty effective way to kill a snake. 
never tried it, but I'm sure it is. And striking your heel is how a venomous snake might kill a person. It seems possible that this all happens at once, that the woman's offspring steps on the serpent's head and gets bitten in the process. In defeating the serpent, he is mortally wounded himself. Now, some modern commentators, even so-called conservative ones, are hesitant to see a picture of Christ in this passage. I find it impossible not to see Christ in this passage. I happen to believe we should read the whole Bible as Christian scripture. So Jesus is the ultimate impossible birth narrative, born of the Virgin Mary. And just as in the days of Moses' birth, uh, Pharaoh followed the serpent's footsteps by trying to destroy the woman's offspring, so in the days of Jesus, King Herod the Great had Jewish boys murdered, seeking to eliminate the promised offspring of the woman. It's It's all a reflection of what we see in John's vision recorded in Revelation 12 of the great red dragon. A dragon is a a serpent, by the way. They're waiting for a woman to give birth so he can devour the offspring. Jesus Christ is the true and ultimate offspring of the woman. And this shows us the supremacy of Christ in all of human history. He was the plan from the very beginning, not a plan B. The ultimate answer to the brokenness in the world and the course of its history is made known from the very beginning and foreshadowed again and again as the Bible unfolds its story. All of human history was leading up to the coming of Christ and all of God's promises for redemption are fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ. They are yes and amen in him. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. He took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through death, he destroyed the devil. Struck by the serpent, he crushed the serpent's head. We don't often talk about how the cross destroyed Satan's power, probably because there have been some people uh, in church history who want to talk about it maybe a little too much. As fallen sinners apart from Christ, Satan's not our biggest problem. God is our biggest problem. He is holy and righteous and just and worthy of all worship. And we have rebelled against his holiness and thought and word and deed. And for this, the Bible teaches that we deserve God's just punishment. The central point of the cross is that Jesus died in our place for our sins. He took the punishment that God's holy justice rightly required. He bore the wrath of God in our place. It's not some kind of bargain between God and the devil as if Satan gets all the bad ones and God gets all the good ones, but they decided to make some kind of trade. Nevertheless, our rebellion against God has consequences. In rebelling against God, we are following after Satan, and that places us under his rule. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were sons of disobedience, offspring 
of the serpent, followers of the dark prince. This is where rejection of God's authority ultimately gets us. We try to live as our own authority, but we end up as slaves to darkness. In our rebellion itself, we become followers of the devil's rebellion. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our rebellion by his death on the cross. He proclaimed his victory to spirits in prison and he rose from the grave as the one who broke the power of death. And he breaks its power in us today. He breaks the devil's hold on us. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As Paul tells us in Colossians 1. So our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for. That means that the devil, and the word devil means accuser, or diabolos in Greek, it's accuser or slanderer, he has nothing left to accuse us of. He has nothing to hold over our heads to keep us in fear and keep us in submission. Jesus has removed even the sting and the fear of death. Jesus lives, and so shall I. We are free. God rest ye merry, Ladies and gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. So what's the main point here when it comes to Christ first? The reason I wanted to look at this passage is it shows us that Christ first is the whole message of Scripture. It's the Bible's main point from the beginning. He's not plan B. He is the goal of history. All things were made by him and through him and for him. Now at this point, preachers are expected to end with a list of practical applications. And I could rattle off a few. You know, practical applications can be good. I made a few at the end of last week's sermon. Uh, there are ways that we try to be doers rather than just hearers of the word. There's nothing wrong with practical applications, but sometimes we want practical applications because we think our life is the main point. If all this talk about Jesus doesn't fit into my story or help me achieve my goals and what I'm trying to accomplish today, then it's just empty talk. It doesn't seem relevant to me. A preacher's job is to answer that question, how is this relevant to me? What I want to suggest is that we have this backwards. Maybe a better question for us all to ask is, how is my life relevant to the gospel, to the story of Christ? If what's going on in my life has nothing to do with Jesus, then my life is empty of its purpose. I was created for him and redeemed for him. Now, don't get me wrong. You'll find that Jesus has plenty to do with your everyday life if you follow him. He will comfort you in your suffering. He will confront you in your sinning and conform you to his image and confirm you as one of his saints. But we find all of that not by making his story just one more part of our lives, but by making our lives part of his story. As Jesus himself said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Christ's sake, will save it. It's better for me to have my life as just one chapter or just one paragraph or just a footnote in the story of Christ's great work and saving his people, redeeming the, the world, 
than it is for me to have the most exciting biography to leave behind, but one in which Christ is just one part of my story, even if an important part. Your life doesn't have to be amazing or exciting by earthly standards for it to have lasting meaning and value and purpose. All you need to do is lay it down wherever he puts you for the sake of the kingdom, for the glory of God. Jesus is not just one more identifying feature of who we are, not just one more item to list among our earthly achievements and accomplishments. We don't add Jesus to our lives to give them meaning. We're called to give our lives in following him. So for today, I'm not going to give you any practical implications, just to make that clear. I'm going to leave you instead with the question, do you see Christ first as just a way to make your life better or the next way to try to make our church bigger and better? Or is Christ the way, the truth, and the life? Do you want him to serve you your goals, or are you ready to give all in serving him for his glory? Let's pray. Father, we cannot do it apart from your grace. This call of Christ to take up our cross and follow him. This call that Christ gives as he calls a man and bids him come and die. We're not equal to that task. So we need your grace and we need your spirit to be active within our lives, within our hearts, molding us and shaping us into the image of your son reminding us of who he is and what he did for us. He first laid down his life for us so that we can become children of God rather than children of the devil. We ask that each day you would bring the truth of the gospel to mind, to our hearts. Don't let us Ignore it. Don't let a day go by where we're not thankful for what you have done in us. Break our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh and hearts of faith. Help us to believe your promises, to rejoice in the beauty of who Christ is, to be awestruck that the God of all creation would send his only son to die a cruel death so that we might share in his glorious resurrection life. Father, we ask that you would be with us, that we might be so consumed by the glory of Christ and the wonder of his sacrifice that it would become a joy and a privilege to follow in his footsteps as Paul did to count all things lost whatever might have been gain we count loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ and may we count all things loss and be willing to give all things in order to make him known in our lives and the way that we treat one another 
in your church, putting Christ on display in the life of your people, but also that we might show his love and his grace to the world around us that desperately needs love and grace that only you can give. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ and for your glory. Amen. All right. As a response to the word, let's unite in this historic confession of faith uh, known as the Nicene Creed. Give me a moment here. My eyes are a little blurry after having been closed for a while. Let's recite these words together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, as we come now to the point in the service following the message which points us to your son, we're reminded of the importance of the cross. As Jared pointed out, sometimes we have this mistaken thought that the cross was for the destruction of evil, but the cross was to save us. Father, the cross reminds us of our own inability to save ourselves. From the scriptures this morning, we're reminded that we are all sinners. And while, yes, it came from Adam, each one of us individually sins, independent of the sin of Adam. And for those sins, there is a cost, and there must be a price paid for that. The Old Testament had the sacrificial system, which reminded people that their sins were costly, but that never satisfied the sin. But the cross has satisfied our sins. So on that night when Jesus, before the cross, shared these two elements with his disciples, 
who is preparing the way for us even today to be remembering him and the sacrifice and your grace and mercy. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Allow you a moment to prepare your communion. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and having blessed it, he gave it to them and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then following that in like manner, he also took the cup and blessed it and gave it to them and said, drink from it all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for these signs which we have just partaken that remind us of the broken body and shed blood of our Savior. We thank you for the new covenant that Christ established in his blood. And we thank you that in him you've delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have made us part of your heavenly kingdom that's not of this world, and you've given us this identity that is often difficult to live out as as aliens and strangers in this land. But on this weekend, when the country in which we sojourn is celebrating her independence, we give thanks for the civil freedoms that we are able to enjoy that in many ways are are unparalleled in in the world's history. And we give thanks to you for your, your common grace that led people to see the need for these freedoms and led others to give their lives to defend and secure them. And we pray as you instruct in your word for all of those are leaders in all levels of of government, whether local, state, or federal, or judges, or lawmakers, or executives. We pray for all of those who serve with their leadership, and all those who serve their nation in in various ways. We ask that they may do so in accordance with your will and your justice. And we pray that we would be free to live peaceful and quiet lives, again, as your word instructs us. Yet we also recognize that the state of things in our country, as the state of things are in the entire world from the beginning, are not the way that they are supposed to be. There is much to lament. We we lament that the idea of a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has been inconsistently applied. These rights have been denied too often in the course of our nation's history and still today, whether in things like racism and white supremacy that still demean and even take lives today, or in the taking of hundreds of thousands of unborn lives each year. 
So even as we celebrate the things that we enjoy as good gifts from your hand, we're grieved over the sin that surrounds us, sin that dwells in our own hearts, and the suffering that sin brings to too many. We recognize that while we may live in the greatest nation in the world, if you were to judge our nation for its sins, we would not stand before you. So we pray that you would continue to shed your grace on us. More than this, we pray for the church that dwells in this nation. We are so easily swept into the same hostilities that define the culture around us. We're often more guided by our favorite news outlets than by your word. Forgive us for allowing the things of this earth to define us, for confusing our, our temporary allegiances to earthly kingdoms with our ultimate allegiance to Christ Jesus our Lord, for allowing earthly politics to shape our faith. If we allow the church to divide the way the nation divides and along the same lines, then we deny the power of the gospel that calls people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and makes them into one new man. So stir up your church to follow Christ and Christ alone. Make us into a church that speaks boldly and lovingly the truth of the gospel that sets men and women free with a true and lasting freedom. And make us also into a church that lives in light of that truth, that shows our faith by our works, that practices what your word calls the pure and undefiled religion, visits widows and orphans in their affliction while keeping ourselves unstained from the world. May we be not only hearers and speakers of the word, but doers of the word. May they know that we are Christians by our love. May they see Christ in all we do. Continuing our prayer, we also lift up those in our congregation who are suffering in various ways. We remember Linda and her fight against cancer and for those who are recovering from surgery and all those who are dealing with health issues of various kinds, we pray for healing, we pray for peace and for comfort. Many of us are suffering in ways beyond number. We suffer in silence with anxiety or depression, sickness and grief from losses that are, are still felt so keenly today. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. Help us to know that you are with us every hour. And we remember also the global church, our brothers and sisters from every people and nation. We pray for your grace and peace to be upon the people of God wherever they dwell, whether they live in peace where the church is thriving, or whether they live amid suffering and persecution and fear for their own lives. Father, be with them. Glorify your name through them. You have given them also of your spirit and your word, and they are not lacking any gift that you give them to glorify your name and to make yourself known, your son known. And so we ask that you would be with your church 
build your church and to de- till the day that we bow with all of them before the throne of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. Father, bless us, be with us, help us as we seek, as beginning this new chapter in this new location with a new name, but the same mission to make Christ known. Help us to put Christ first in all we do. Father, send forth your spirit to glorify your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
trying to think if there's anything I need to tell you before I, we go, <laughs> but I can't think of it. I'm sure there's something. There was something. I've forgotten what it is, so if you remember what it is, be sure to do it. <laughs> and now for our benediction. May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone. May he make your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen.